Old Testament scripture this morning is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And our New Testament scripture is John 15, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does, does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But this my Father is by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends that for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We return to our study of Colossians, but before I read our text, I failed to uh, invite you all, if you'd like to speak with the seeps following the service, uh, just step up here and they'll be up here and you can visit with them at that time. Uh, as uh, I've been reminding you before reading these texts from Colossians, this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul from prison uh, to a church that he apparently did not himself plant. It seems to have been a sort of grandchild uh, church of his. Uh, the church planter was a man named Epiphras, and he is with Paul 
and telling Paul about what's going on there, there's some concern that um, teachers have come in that have begun to teach that in addition to the gospel, and particularly in addition to, to Christ, more is needed to have a more mature and full-orbed spirituality. And so Paul has written this letter emphatically to state that Jesus Christ is supreme in the cosmos, the firstborn of all creation, that he's supreme in the new creation, the church, he's the firstborn from the dead in both the cosmos and in the church. He is the integrating principle that holds all things together. And he is holding up the supremacy of Christ in order to then speak to the full sufficiency of Christ in our own salvation and spiritual growth. So that's what we've been looking at. And we come this morning uh, to him addressing more specifically the kinds of problematic teaching that these teachers have been giving to the Colossians that have caused confusion. So we begin in verse six of chapter two, and we're gonna read all the way down to the end. In the summertime, because people are coming and going, I like to take larger chunks of scripture each Sunday than I ordinarily would because it's hard for any of us coming and going to follow a careful exposition of a small part of the scripture. So we're going to read uh, nearly this entire second chapter. Colossians beginning with verse six. Paul writes, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So that's the charge. How are we to do it? Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The word of the Lord. Now this is a freeing text. I understand little milk toast, thanks be to God, if the text is a hard one, but this is one to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, thank you. Um, Paul is laying out for us three elements of the teaching that was being given to the to the Colossians, false teaching that promised them freedom, but that led instead to spiritual bondage. And then he contrasts that with three keys to experiencing the kind of freedom that Christ would give us from bondage to sin and death and all the things that have held us back from knowing God and being free in his presence. Now, Paul actually contrasts them, says the negative teaching, then the positive, the negative, the positive. What I'd like to do in the time that we have is just unthread these and look first at the three aspects of false teaching that were being offered because those same categories are present today in the church, and we need to be aware of them because it's very easy for us to fall for all three of these. And then... In conclusion, we'll look at the three answers, the three ways that lead to freedom. Now, just so that you know I'm not making any of this up, let me first show you which verses I'm going to be relating to, if you have a Bible uh, with you. If not, uh, take my word for it. Um, First of all, we'll just note these three aspects of false teaching and how Paul warns them away from each of these. The first is in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. That's the first. The second is down in verse 16. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. And the third is in the very next verse, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up, etc. So what are these three things? The first is that he tells us not to let people claiming extraordinary spiritual knowledge take us captive. The second is not to let people professing extraordinary holiness condemn us. 
make us feel guilty and ashamed. And thirdly, don't let people professing to have extraordinary spiritual experience, in Paul's words, disqualify us. Tell us that you're not part of the end group, you're not spiritual because you haven't experienced what I've experienced. So those are the three categories and I want us to look at those quickly. The first one, probably I'll spend more time on because it is, I think, the unique temptation of our part of the church, reformed evangelicalism. Don't let those claiming special knowledge take you captive. What's he referring to? Well, in Paul's case, he uses philosophy, uh, but he almost certainly, all commentators agree, was not referring to uh, Greek philosophy of Plato and, and his followers. Um, he rather was addressing the problems that would become very great in the church the next generation and that were affecting both Judaism and this new growing church that was growing out of Judaism. And it had to do with, uh, if you're philo philosophically inclined, Neoplatonism and what later became known as Gnosticism, a word that simply takes the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. An agnostic is someone who says, I don't know, I can't know. Agnostic, uh, agnostic, a-gnosis, not knowledge. <coughs> so they were claiming that they had special knowledge, and this was a huge feature in the first century from the mystery religions to these various cults, and they worked their way into the church and said, yes, Jesus, God's son, he came, he died, he rose, but there are mysteries that have not yet been revealed, and we will reveal them to you through our knowledge. Now, where do we see that in reformed circles? That doesn't sound very reformed, does it? Well, the same thing is too often at work and I'll simply give you my own story. I grew up in a pastor's home and had biblical knowledge and I was the one in the family who ran far away and lived a profligate life for over a decade and then God in his grace drew me back. I wasn't looking for him, it was a big surprise. But God drew me back to himself. I marry a Jewish woman and then the Lord gets a hold of both of us. Next thing we know, I'm changing from philosophy to theology. Next thing I know, I'm in seminary. Next thing I know, I'm ordained. And I will never forget when we moved down to Chattanooga for me to serve the first church that I, I served as a, as a pastor. Uh, I remember getting the family moved in. We had one of our kids, little baby at that point, getting Marianne settled, going to the church, starting to unload the books that I'd managed to accumulate at that early point. I'll never forget kind of getting my study set up, sitting at my desk and going, what just happened? <laughs> it was like I woke up, it's like waking up on the Tonight Show without your clothes on. <laughs> I, I, I thought, you know, I, what am I doing here? I, I have accepted responsibility for a congregation of people. And I, I'm not sure I'm ready to accept responsibility for myself and my little family. I don't know what to do. So I began studying the, the old Puritan writers 
and those great writers of the Reformation and began to just steep myself in it. And I would listen to cassette tapes of Martin Lloyd-Jones and Eric Alexander and just every day was trying to eat everything that I could so that I'd have something to bring back up for the people. And it was great for a while. But what happened was, because of my own brokenness and pride and my own intellectual pretensions, I began to learn all these things that I had not been taught in my poor benighted part of the church, who didn't understand the doctrines of grace as I was coming to understand them, did not understand that if you want to drink deeply of the truth of the gospel, you've got to come over to the reformed side of the church. And, and this just grew and grew, and pretty soon I was going to reformed conferences instead of Christian conferences. And I was concerned that we really teach our people well the doctrines of grace. And I mean, and it was popular, it was flourishing with a particular kind of person. There's a particular kind of depressed person who's always drawn to the reformed side of the family. And uh, uh, no, that, that's not my line actually, that's Sinclair Ferguson's, one of the great reformed theologians. Um, but the bottom line was I was becoming one of those arrogant, insufferable little Calvinists who thought that we were the ones with the true knowledge. And these poor benighted you know, people over here who just don't get it, yes, they may be Christians, but you know, they haven't. They haven't had single malt scotch. They're still over there drinking blended whiskey. Okay, that's a bad one. But, you know, it, it's just, it was that kind of nonsense. And God in his grace brought some people into my life, including my wife, who, who just said, you know, I'm getting sick of hearing about this. Um, <laughs> You know, th this is not, I thought it was a lot simpler than that. I thought knowing and following Jesus was pretty straightforward. And one of, one of the key moments that woke me up, uh, a man who very graciously became a close friend, he was a generation ahead of me. Some of you may remember uh, the great, of, he was a pastor of First Presbyterian Chattanooga, but he was a great evangelist, Ben Hayden. <laughs> And Ben had the radio and television show Changed Lives. And he was like, just preached to, to see lives changed by the gospel of grace. And he got so sick of everybody up at Covenant College and people like me being critical that he was not preaching the Reformed faith but telling stories. His answer was, Jesus told stories. Um, but finally he got so tired of it that he asked if he could go up and address one of the senior classes at Covenant College, where a lot of the criticism was coming from. And so he went up and he said, I, I, I know that you all have really been studying hard and I wanna see how sharp you are. And so I, I brought some quotes from some commentaries and I want you to kind of critique them. I'll read them to you and I'll critique them. And everyone was just terrible. Oh, you know, that's some Arminian, you know, some rank uh, doesn't know the doctrines of grace, hasn't read Calvin. And of course, at the end of all of these things, he said, ta-da, every one of those quotes was from Calvin's commentaries. Because, he said, John Calvin had his institutes, his system, but when he went to the word of God, he didn't force it to say 
what his systematic said. Brothers and sisters, don't let anyone from any part of the church take you captive. Now I'm going to get a little more personal. Don't let those of us who teach you take you captive by making secondary issues primary issues. It'll tear churches apart. Because as Paul Koistra used to say, whenever you let secondary issues become primary issues, you don't have more primary issues. You don't have anything but secondary issues because people see through it and they don't know what you're saying that really matters. The only place where you and I should be willing to say, thus saith the Lord, is in those areas of apostles' creed faith where all Christians at all times in all places have agreed. And beyond that, we should have the humility to say, those of us in Reformed circles see it this way. Whether you're talking about origins, you know, views of Genesis 1, or whether you're talking about end of time, revelation. You can say, this is how I see it. This is how some of us see it. But on all those kinds of issues, we have to say to people, equally biblical, godly people disagree with me on some of the things that I'm teaching you now. And so we have to be honest with one another and not take one another captive by claiming that uh, this is the real way to see it. I've been there. It's ugly. Don't go there. That's his first point. We'll come back to his solution. Second thing is, don't let people claiming special holiness condemn you. And his illustration is people who are, who are following the holiness code. He says, let no one, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. I'll be quick here because I think I addressed this last week or maybe the week before, but, you know, this is the particular problem of the pietistic part of evangelicalism. You do find it in some Presbyterian circles, but it's much more prevalent among Baptists and independent churches and holiness churches that claim they, they do what the Pharisees did. They add around God's word more teachings to try to keep it buffered. So as I've told you before, I grew up where the rules were we don't drink, dance, smoke, play cards, go to movies, or go with girls who do. You know, it was just you had a list of rules, any one of which it may be fine for an individual Christian to decide this is better for me in following Christ. I'm going to do this. Lots of other things. But it has an appearance of holiness. But it isn't holiness. It's false religion if you impose it and put it as this is what it means to follow Christ. Now, I think I mentioned last week, we were a wonderful, loving family, and they loved the gospel, and my dad faithfully preached it, but it always bled over into legalism because that's what they'd been taught at Moody. And, and so, you know, I'd hear them say, this is a lovely person. I, you know, I'm not sure he's a believer. He's a smoker. Or, or you know, she's, she's, she's lovely, but, you know, I, I heard that she has a glass of wine with dinner. Or they go to movies. You know, it's just... And the fun thing if you have a rather 
uh, disruptive sense of humor is when you get people with different lists together. So sort of the classic is to get an independent Baptist on Sunday in the home of a, a Dutch Calvinist because the independent Baptist can't believe that after church he goes, pours himself a beer and lights up a cigar. The Dutch Calvinist is sitting there thinking, I don't know if this guy's really a Christian because he stopped at the store on the way over to pick something up. He broke Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, don't let people put a trip on you with their rules. If they're not in God's word, if it's not an apostolic call to holiness, honor them, don't make fun of them, but don't for one moment let them condemn you because you're not keeping their set of rules. The last don't let them do this is he says, don't let people claiming special experiences disqualify you. And of course, the easy mark there, and they bleed into all parts of the church since the big third wave charismatic renewal back when I was starting out. It's those who've been blessed or cursed, depending on how they took it, by the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. Praise God for places where the Holy Spirit moved in power and praise God when he breaks our categories apart. And um, do you all know Steve Brown? Uh, Steve said to me once when I was a young pastor, uh, and he was a good friend of Jim Kennedy too, he said, John, I want you to know that no matter how many times you have people lay hands on you, you're never going to speak in tongues. And I said, really, why? He said, because I pray in my prayer for you every day. Do not let him speak in tongues, because if he does, he won't have a ministry to the people that you've sent him to. He said, I also pray every morning that in the middle of Sunday morning broadcast service, Jim Kennedy will break into tongues. So that was, that's Steve, if you know Steve. But the point is, if people have had extraordinary experiences, we celebrate them, that with them. We say, thank God, I have people in my family who've been deeply touched by the Holy Spirit in that way. I have a younger brother who is a Southern Baptist pastor who in private prays in tongues. He didn't seek it, it scared him to death. He was hiking up in the mountains near Billy Graham's home and walking his dog, singing, and suddenly realized he felt as though he'd walked under a power source and was singing in a tongue he didn't know. And it both frightened him and thrilled him. And as he began to walk out from under it, he said he instinctively stepped back, trying to get back under this as though it were a plate. And it transformed his own life and ministry. But I've loved the fact that he has never said, this is an experience that you have to have to be filled with the Spirit, because that's unbiblical. So you get what Paul is saying. Do not let people, with their teaching, what, whatever part of the church it's from, they've got the secret about end times. Gosh, people get so into end times. Prophecy conferences. I don't think the Lord wants us to have prophecy conferences. He wants us to have mission conferences. Because when in Acts 1, the apostles said, is this now the time that you're going to, you know, is this it? He said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. 
but you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to make me known beginning where you are in outworking concentric circles to the ends of the earth. Don't get caught by somebody with the latest thing. And if I can, I didn't say it before, and I want to say it carefully because I'm a reader and I love reading theology and reading books by friends of mine and I'm helped by them. But do not have one person who's your be-all, end-all. And I know if Tim Keller was still alive, he would say that, he used to tell people that. If you're just reading my books, you're going to get in trouble. Do not do that. Read mine, read the books of others, read some books of people who disagree with me. Unless you can make a case, a strong case, for views that you reject, you don't really yet have your own view. Do you realize that? If you adamantly take a position that is debatable within the church, and this is my position, but you can't make a strong argument for someone who disagrees with you, you don't yet have a position because your position is unexamined. So don't let people bind you up and take you captive with their super knowledge. And don't let people who claim extraordinary holiness condemn you. And don't let people claiming extraordinary experiences what, what disqualify you. Okay, very quickly, the answer as in everything in this letter, is union with Christ. What do I do with this question of how can I know enough? How can I read enough? How can I ever understand enough? He says, find your fullness in Christ. He says in verse 9, in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Brothers and sisters, if you are the, the youngest, newest child of God, you have been joined to Christ in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. And he will be your teacher as you study the word. And, and the church will help teach. You'll be discipled, but be discipled by many. When people have come to me over the years and said, would you disciple me? I've always said no unless you get a group of us. Because if, if you just go with me, you're not just going to get my good stuff. You're going to pick up all my ticks and twitches. And I don't want you to. So your fullness is in Christ. And here in this place is the body of Christ. The fullness of Christ dwells. Live in that and live out of that. What about the guilt and the shame and the pain that I feel and the temptation to try to just go and make a list of rules that I can keep so that I'll feel better about myself. He says, no, find your forgiveness in Christ. How does he say it? Verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And listen to this. Think about things in your past that you're so ashamed of that you wish you could go back and undo. Do you think God still looks at them? This is what he's done with your past and mine. Verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands, God's law, we'd broken it. What does he do? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When? When he was hanging on the cross, he was triumphing over the enemies of our soul, everything that would come and tell us that God doesn't love us, that we're too bad, that we're too messed up, that we're too broken, that we've done too much. No. Christ, in his all-sufficient sacrifice for you and for me, paid that debt in full. It's nailed to the cross, that beautiful old hymn. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And finally, he says, don't fall for the chasing after experiences. Find your freedom in Christ. Your freedom isn't going to be found in just getting to the right conference at the right time, the right place. Those can be great and can be helpful, but you already have been given the fullness of the Godhead, the freedom of Christ. That's yours now. How does he say it? <clears throat> Down in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all pass away according to human precepts and teaching. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Lord, whom you have set free is free indeed. And I pray that people who walked into this room still feeling the shackles of the old life Will this morning in Christ feel them fall away and know the joy of being able to say, as Dr. King did, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty I'm free at last. You've set us free. Don't let us go back and live as if we were in slavery to the elemental principles of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. What gift of grace is 